as the birds are traveling and they heard something, looked, saw decoys or a flag and then reacted to it. Hmm. It almost sounds like you know what you're doing sometimes. <laughs> uh, 60% of the time it works every time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Welcome to the DSD hunting podcast. This is episode two. Hopefully we didn't lose our entire audience, though. I don't know if we ever really had an audience for episode one. Um, but we are here with RNTV co-host and producer, Sean Stahl. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you guys doing? We're doing good. And I, I just got word from our producer that we did not lose our audience after the first podcast. Both of them are still on board. All right. It's probably my mom and dad. Yeah. Well, Anyways, how, how are you, Sean? Doing good. Doing good. Just uh, sitting down here in my office. I actually had to throw away. Uh, I was in here in a t-shirt and the air conditioner hit me. I had to grab a Sitka jacket behind me out of the closet so I could stay warm. Oh, that's that's good. After... I'm prepping for hunting season. Right I on. Fall. I want fall bad. This early, the early season is going on now, but it doesn't. Early season doesn't get me going. It's too hot. Uh, birds are too spread out. They don't want to react to a call. And me and ragweed are not friends. My nose turns into a bit of a faucet this time of year. Yeah, we don't do as much early goose season out here as, as we used to. Um, you know, it's cool. It's cool and all. And I used to do it. But, uh, you know, I mean, when all right here in Michigan, where I live, we get a 30-day early season, starts September 1st, goes to the 30th, five birds. After that, the limit drops to three, and it's a 107-day long season. So we get 137 days to hunt here, and if I want to travel around and fill in the void, I mean, there's plenty of opportunity that, like, most of us didn't have when we were, you know, young. So I just kind of pick and choose my spots now. And would you say it's more the the allergy that's keeping you away from chasing the early season birds, or it's the it's the allergies? I don't I don't enjoy the heat. I don't enjoy. I, I like birds to react to the call, um, and decoy, and it it just seems like they're still in the little family groups, and they there's food everywhere. Uh, the temperature it's so you know it's warm a lot of times. So some days they fly, some days they don't. Some days they go to the water. You know, it's just, it's so unpredictable and it's right there at the tail end of summer. And, you know, we're still working shows or just getting done with shows and coming home and things getting wrapped up, you know, summer family stuff. And it just, it just doesn't feel like hunting yet until we get a good frost and the leaves start changing colors to me, really. Yeah, I, I hear that. And, you know, another one of the big challenges, at least for us out here, is that we're really at the tail end of the farming season and there's a lot of fields going under and, and you know all the the farmers are in a in a rush to get everything replanted before the rains hit, and um, you know you could be watching a field uh, the week leading into our early goose season, which is only about an eight day season out here, and get all excited and then show up Friday morning, you know the the day before the opener and the farmers work in the you know the field and so yeah uh, and we'll have you know like typically our wheat will come down sometime in July. Uh, and then the oats a little bit after that. And by this time of year, they, you know, they're either turned under or they're starting to grow up, you know, and got ragweed patches all over, or they've been sprayed. And, 
and you're sitting there and these birds have already pretty well fed most of these places out uh, and you're waiting for other crops to come down and you really don't have a lot of field options to hunt. You've got a lot of hunters and not a lot of spots to hunt. So, um, you know, I travel a bunch and do a lot of other things. So I, I just don't, I don't get into the rat race and beating everybody up to try to get a field, you know, when it's going to be 90 degrees out and, there's uh, 75 to 100 birds you're trying to share with two other groups in the field. So I just sit back and let them have their time and um, and get after them. Well, that's that's your opportunity to go hunt a loafing pond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're talking about what we were in. <laughs> yeah, and on, I'm on kidding for, for the record. Yeah. I'm, I'm kidding yeah. about that. You know, and the, the probably, I guess we can, the early season you've got, Everybody's been sitting around all summer. They're all chomping at the bit. They've, you know, they've been practicing their calls. They bought all the new decoys and, and they're got their blinds and they put them together and they're just ready to go and ready to go. And, um, a lot of times there's a, a lot of the little bulls out there, you know, and not in some of the, some of the, even some of the big bulls are acting like little bulls really, you know, it's almost like the rut and, uh, they see them and they think that's where they got to go hunt them. And, you know, it's, and we're talking about a, a roost and that, that's the biggest problem we have in the early season around here and around the country. I hear people talk about all the time is people hunting the roost and confusing what a roost in a, in a day loaf area in a feeding area are, and, you know, people see these birds on these roosts and they, they, they plan to go hunt them there because that's where they see them. That's where they think they got to be. And man, I tell people all the time, that's one of the worst things you could do is hunt a roost. You can go, and you can go and close down all the restaurants in town and you'll still find a place to go eat. But if somebody burns your house down and you're going to probably move, move somewhere else. Right. That's a and great that's, analogy. You know, and it's the quickest way to change the patterns of geese is to hunt the roost. And there's nothing more frustrating when you put in the time and effort and scout these birds and pattern them and figure out what they're doing. And you go out there on that day and you set up, and at 6 a.m. in the morning when it's oh dark 30 still and it's an hour and a half before shooting time and geese are flying all over and you know the only reason they're flying all over right then is because somebody went down in their house and burned it down and they're setting up decoys in there and running them out and uh, jump geese are the hardest ones to hunt they're, they're spooked they're scared they don't know what's going on and it just frustrates everybody that's out in the field trying to you know hunt them the right way and and call them in and decoy them in yeah and i don't know about out of michigan where you're at but around here nine times out of ten they don't come back and i mean you know they might not come back until the right. season's over let alone i'm not I'm not it's just a, talking about that morning i'm talking about through the whole season oh right yeah it's you know i mean their reactions are, are based on us conditioning them and us going in and and pushing them out of these roofs it just forces them into areas where they can't get hunted and where they cause human conflict on the golf courses, onto city parks, uh, on, you know, into, uh, corporate, you know, corporations on their lawns and, you know, they're, they're landing in town and here at the, at the VFW hall, because there's three acres of grass there and it's not doing anybody any good because, you know, they, they sit in town and stay in town and we're creating that by, by conditioning these birds to stay away from these roost areas in these fields out, you know, and, and giving them safe zones. And I've, I've always been a, 
a, a big advocate of having safe zones or refuges and, and the birds need that they need to have well they can't have 100 percent pressure on them all the time because we have then we find what happens now is it's early season and we're four days into the it's september 4th we're four days in and it's hard to go out and find geese feeding in a field because they're roosting in town and staying in town and we've created that well, I'm really glad that you bring that up because one of the things I wanted to ask you, um, see out here in Eastern Washington, goose hunting is only allowed on Saturdays, Sundays, and Wednesdays. And that's how it used to be here in the Valley for many years. Well, they've since upped our, um, well, you can hunt seven days a week now. So, uh, and we have seen birds get conditioned, just as you say, to live in town now. And it's yeah. just extremely frustrating. And, and I know that I would personally like to see us go back to Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday, or even Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday hunting. You um, know, I, I'm not a, you know, I don't have a PhD in waterfowl biology and ecology, but um, I do have one in, in hard knocks of hunting. And in all my history and traveling around the country and hunting different places and hunting around here, you know, extensively, I've found that, you know, we try to maximize hunter opportunity, but that has a negative effect on harvest. Mm -hmm. The more, the more opportunity we create, the lower the harvest becomes on a daily basis because you're putting pressure on these birds. You have to be able to manage pressure and hunter opportunity and balance it. You can't give total hunter opportunity and give 365 days a year to be able to hunt, you know, whatever, and expect them to do normal, natural things on a day-to-day -day basis, because they just won't. They'll go, you know, the path of least resistance, and they'll go find a place where nobody's bothered. And that's what they do, you know, that's what they do after the first three days of the early season. First day of the early season, it's always the best. The birds don't know what's going on. They fly out. Um, they get shot at. The next day, there's a few less. In the third day, they kind of start figuring it out. And then the fourth day, it's no good until we start picking up some north winds and get some molt migrators and get some new birds in here and get some crops that start coming down. And these birds, you know, in the early season, too, you know, you're, you're hunting birds that are still primarily in family groups. They're still, you know, they, they, they're sort of starting to group up, but they really don't want to be. They want to be together, but they don't want to be next to each other. Mm -hmm. So they kind of stay spread out. Um, you know, and that's what makes it tough to, to call these birds in the early season because they don't necessarily want to be with everybody else. They want to be around them, but not with them. And later in the year, um, as more and more, you know, food sources become available and they start running around the country, they start grouping up a lot more and being a little more sociable and it, it gives a better opportunity to be able to hunt them. So then... Um, how do you set an early goose season spread then while they're still in their family bunches and they want to be maybe in the same field, you know, uh, you know but not, not together. I typically, my early season spreads are, you know, it, it leads into, you know, how many decoys do you use? Well, I use as few decoys as possible based on, you know, how well I can hide in, are the birds using the field or if they're, you know, if they're not, but if I say, if I'm hunting an X field 
and there's a hundred to 150 birds, which is typical for here in the, in the right off the bat in the early season. If I'm hunting that, I want to put decoys spread out in smaller bunches and I want to put the decoys where I don't want the birds to land and leave a pretty good open spot right where I want them to land because typically they're not going to typically, I mean, they're wild animals that are liable to do anything at any given time, but typically in the early season, they're not going to come up and land in the black blob where they will later on in the year. Um, so I, that's what I like to do. Small decoy spreads. If I can hide, uh, I mean, opening day, the early season here, we use 21 decoys. I'm, I, for some reason, I'm superstitious and it always has to be an odd number. It can't be an even number of decoys. But hmm. Probably doesn't really matter, but that's me. But I used 21 decoys and there was probably 150 birds used in the field. Um, I don't want to use more decoys than birds that are using a field if I'm hunting an X uh, because a lot of times that's a red flag for the incoming birds and it's less decoys for them to figure out that they're decoys and I'll spread them out and put them where where I you know I don't want birds to be and then just leave that open hole there and you're still going to get birds that are going to land short and wide and all that other stuff where you got to try to use a call to pull them in but by and large that's been the most successful way for me. So the overall theme then being fewer decoys. Fewer decoys, family groups, and spread out. Okay. What about what about in the fall? Because I've heard I've heard rumors that Sean Stahl uh, really spreads decoys out a long ways and is and is pretty brave about putting them um, well out of range I, of the blind. I do that, but and there's there's a couple of reasons why I'll put spread decoys out and get them way out of range. One is if you drive around and you just look at what everybody's doing, we all kind of, as hunters, kind of fall into the same MO. You know, we all generally have a trailer or you know, a certain amount of decoys that we put out and put them out in the typical alphabet letter. And that, you know, if you're hunting the same birds day after day after day and not getting new birds, you're, you're smartening these birds up to what we're doing. So I'll, you know, if, if I see what guys are doing and, and it's working, I'll kind of follow along. If not, then I'll go the complete opposite. If, you know, if guys are just using five to eight dozen decoys, I may put out 15 or 20 dozen, especially if I'm running traffic in an area and I'm apt to spread decoys out further because most people won't do that. And it just gives the birds something different to look at uh, in, and not what they're conditioned to. The second part of that is most of the time I'm filming and most of the time, I mean, and when I'm filming, we've got cameras, we've got dogs, we've got extra people in the field and you got extra movement going on. You kind of got a little bit of a circus going on and you got to try to help mask that circus a little bit. So I, you do that by putting out decoys uh, further out. And the theory is, is that I want to get birds lower out in front of me then coming in more vertical on top of the spread where they can look down right down on the circus. Mm -hmm. So if you can get them lower out front and then pull them up into the circus, you're more apt to finish them. Because a lot of times if they come in vertical, they see something they don't like, they'll spin around and make a circle. And most of the time that first pass is the best pass. After that, you know, if you've already raised a red flag, they're already a little bit weary. And a lot of times them circles never, never amount to, finishing a bird so i like to get them birds down lower and try to work them in with the call and i've 
I put decoys 100, 125 yards downwind of me. Um, and people look at that and they're like, why are you going to have birds land, land, land shorty? Yeah, I probably will have a few, but later in the year, by and large, geese will come to the black spot or come to the mass. They'll follow those lines up just like divers would and into the spread. And I do that a lot of times if I'm hunting with, you know, like say a panel blind out in the middle of a field, you know, it doesn't look a hundred percent natural. It doesn't look bad, but it's not the ultimate act of concealment where you're invisible. This is a blind that sticks up. So I'll put decoys way downwind and I'll make it so that they're not flying directly at the blind, but they're either quartering or coming, you know, as, as a side shot into, into the decoy spreads and they'll follow those lines up. And I've just had better luck doing, you know, hunting that way. So what about the, what, so, I mean, I know a lot of the reason why you're, you're able to do that is you're confident with your calling because you're an excellent caller, but what about the timing of the calling? So, you know, how, how do you get the birds to get down low? And then once they're low, if they're out there at 70 or 80 yards, uh, with the timing of your calling, how, then how do you get them to come to you? I well, mean, obviously if you just called like crazy the whole time, they would no, just, you know, it wouldn't work. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. It's all about taking their temperature and seeing what they're doing. And people say, you know, okay, you see, you know what? I ask people this all the time. When you see a flock of birds, what's the first thing you do? Right. And first thing is getting a blind usually, right? Because most people are standing outside the blind horsing around. The second thing they do is call or flag. And to me, those, those two things should wait. You should watch them and see what they're doing. If they're flying at you, you picking up a call is going to do one of two things. It's either going to make them continue doing what they're doing, or it's going to raise a red flag and make them be a little weary and turn away. So if they're coming at me, I'm not going to do much on a call, right? I, I may just make a couple ground talk noises, just some clucks and, and maybe some moans, nothing, you know, deeper tones uh, that are non-threatening type tones. I think, you know, I've told people this all the time is they watch these contest call or contests. They see these YouTube clips of contest guys and they're making 20, 30 different, whatever. I mean, they come up with these notes and they call them different things and monkey backflip over the moon, or I don't know what, you know, <laughs> half the names are for them. But, you know, I, I try telling them that you don't need to make all the notes. And I found that my calling vocabulary since I blew in contests. I, I had a, that, I mean, I still have that large calling book. I, I can sit at a show and make all these notes, but I don't when I'm hunting because it's not necessary, not required. Just, just a cluck and a moan and maybe a spit note thrown in there um, for some variation. But, but just by changing your pitch cadence, you can express different emotion on the call. You know, so if I'm just calling at these birds, just ground talk, they're coming at me, I'm doing these low, soft, deep sounds, and as the birds start coming, if they start doing something, I call it straight line and birds. It's like, uh, you know, if they're coming at you, and you, you're just reeling them in, right? You're reeling them in nice and easy. Well, they start to turn and go off one way. Well, then you pick up your pitch and your cadence a little bit. You raise that to a little bit higher tone and a little bit faster and a little bit sharper to, to get them to come, to get back on that straight line and come in. And typically 
that's what I'll do. If these birds are going to start landing short of me, I'll pick up that pitch cadence and tempo, get louder, get faster, get higher in pitch to bring them up into the spread. So that's, I mean, a long-winded version of what, you know, the question you're asking, but that's typically what I do. And I'll say this, never fall in the box. Always do whatever it takes to get the birds to come in. And, you know, there's not a a 400-yard note. There's not a 50-yard note. It's whatever it takes on that given day. So don't fall into, you know, if he's here, I got to do this. And if that is that, I just, I more or less read the bird and change my pitch cadence and tempo to get them to stay on that line coming in on that first pass. That makes sense. And then, so then what I'm gathering from that is if somebody starts out at the super high pitch cadence and tempo, then they have nowhere to go. You have nowhere to go and the birds are you know if the birds are already coming that's probably not the best way to start now if these birds are you know flying away from you or going you know at a 90 degree you know perpendicular to you yeah you might need to jump in and start with that higher pitch and get at them because you got to change what they're doing right um if you're blowing deep and low sounds at them and they're flying perpendicular to you that's probably not going to work. You got to get that pitch and cadence and make them, you know, at least look at you and see the decoys. And, and you kind of have nothing to lose at that point. No. And, and, you know, the other thing too, I tell people is you call geese two different ways. You call them visually and audibly and, you know, decoys and flags are as much as, as important as, as a goose call is in calling birds in most situations, in most scenarios, they're going to see decoys or see a flag further than they can hear a goose call goose calls are highly directional and you could just i tell people this all the time get a video camera and get two guys one with a video camera one with a call on the flag and you start out and have the person with a call stand in one spot you walk 200 yards downwind blow the call videotape this blow the call and hit the flag and then go crosswind and upwind 200 yards. And you can even do it more, you know, further the distance or vary the distances. And you'll find that you can hear that call really well downwind, sorta on a crosswind, depends on how much the crosswind is. But upwind, you're not gonna hardly ever hear that call. And I don't care who's calling on it. There's just the sound does not travel upwind very well. So, you know, when you use these calls and how you use these calls is really dependent as well. So sometimes these geese, when they hear a call and people think that it's a certain note that they reacted to, it's really the fact that they got into that sound cone as the birds are traveling and they heard something, looked, saw decoys or a flag and then reacted to it. Hmm. It almost sounds like you know what you're doing sometimes. <laughs> uh, 60% of the time it works every time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Oh, do man. you uh do you ever miss contest calling or do you do any of that anymore you know i don't um i did for a little bit when i first got out of it i got out of it i mean i i did it i got into contest calling because you know i seen a couple of guys i seen sean man on i don't know if it was kurt gowdy's show or whatever he's standing uh out in a goose field next to a table and he was blowing his shoreman and then i saw a deal with uh, Tim Brown's blowing his flute and his half breeding that that really got me like man I want so I want to be able to blow a call as good as it was not I never wanted I never said that I wanted to be able to blow it better than them it's just I wanted to be able to say I could blow a call as good as them and that's that's kind of why I got into contest calling and then 
it was a great way to meet people from around the country that had, you know, the passion that I did for waterfowling and, and see how they did things and improve my calling skills and get the opportunity to hunt at different, hunt different places. And, and that's how I got into it. And I did it for a while and then it, I, I just got bored with it. Um, I was pretty successful there for a while and it just got to the point, there was some politics that came into it and, you know, you had to blow for this team and you couldn't talk to so-and-so and you had to flash gang shines and this and that in the, the bullpen. And it just got to the point where it really wasn't fun anymore uh, for me. And I, you know, if I can't talk to people that are my friends just because they blow for a different call maker, then, you know, that's, that's not cool. Cause them, they were my friends before, you know, all these call affiliations and everything came about. And uh, so it, it got to the point where it wasn't fun anymore. So, you know, I got out of it, but, you know, on the other side of it is, you know, once, once I proved to myself, really, the other thing was reason I got, was I proved to myself that, yeah, I can blow a call as, as good as some of these people can. Now, I don't think I'll ever, and I know I'll never uh, be able to blow a goose call as good as Tim Grounds. I mean, it's crazy how talented that guy is on a call, but I mean, I can say that on a contest stage, I can compete with him. Um, but, you know, I mean, in, in reality, you, your life comes up and, you know, beyond all the other stuff that I, that, that I just wasn't having fun anymore. Life comes up, you get married, you have kids, you're doing this, you got a job. You just don't have the time to practice like some of these 16, 18 year old kids do. And, you know, once you figure out you can blow a goose call, I mean, it's, it's, you're just standing on a mountain, puffing your chest out, you know, beating it, saying I can blow a bird whistle. And um, after a while, you just figure out that there's, you know, there's other things in in life and there's other things in waterfowling that that you really want to do. And that's what I'm pursuing now. Uh, But yeah, when I first got out of it, it was like, wow, I was doing a lot of judging and I'm sitting there going, man, I am judging and there's a thousand dollars on the line here. And I'm pretty sure I could have done really well. That was, that was tough for Mm -hmm. about the first year or two. But uh, after that, it was, it was pretty, it it was okay. Um, How many hours a day were you practicing the year you won the world contest? Uh, That's probably not a good question to ask because I'll say it was zero. Um, I, I never, during the summer um once once i got once i got competitive at calling until i got competitive while i was still trying to figure it out i would call two to four hours a day um and i'd call inside i'd call outside i lived in town and there's a river across the street in a uh, episcopal church next door to me and i'd be out there calling in the dark and I had two ladies that were from the Episcopal church come in the dark and they were looking around for a goose that was on the ground. They thought there was one they couldn't find, uh, mm-hmm. couldn't find the river, but, um, but I practice all the time. But then after I got competitive, um, I didn't practice a lot and that was probably to a fault because even though I was real successful in contest, I probably called better two or three days after a contest than I did the day of because I'd go to the contest and I'd hear all these people and it'd, it'd drive me a little harder. And then I'd come home and practice for two or three hours. But when I won the world, um, that was in 2000, the summer of 2000, I had, I had to back it up. I'd never been to Eastern Maryland and called in the world. Um, 
I got into contest calling as something to do in the off season. Eastern Maryland, the world is always in November, always during goose season. And at the time we didn't have a real long goose season. You know, we had like a 18 or 30 day, 18 to a 30 day regular season here in Michigan. So you didn't have a lot of time. And plus I'd take weekends or long weekends and I go guide at places and make money to buy more decoys. And so I never went. Well, I ran into Sean Mann, who I look up to quite a bit in uh, to this day. And and uh, he says, man, you got to come. You got to come to Maryland. He said, this is your time. And, you know, I'd been real successful that summer. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do it because Sean asked. That's why I'll go. So I went and booked my tickets. And, I mean, I, when I booked my tickets, uh, the, the funny part was on my return flight, all they had were first class. So I had to buy a first class ticket home and, uh, and just so happens I, I won that first year that I went there, but on the way to the airport, I, I had been hunting all fall. And when I hunted, I used a half breed. That's what I hunted with. I didn't use my contest call for anything other than calling people, um, two different style. They're both short reads, two different style sounds. One's a people pleaser and one's a goose pleaser. And on the way to the airport, I was like, uh, where's my contest call? And I started digging around in my truck, digging around my truck, and I found it in my glove box just about three miles from the airport. Oh, so I, oh, I jump on the plane. Yeah, I jump on the plane. I fly to Maryland and rent a car and take that all the way out to Easton, check into my hotel, and I go out in the parking lot, and I blew, like, two routines. And and if, if you've ever blown a contest call, they're a lot stiffer take a lot more air a lot more volume you know they're just a louder call and I, my cheeks weren't uh adjusting because that half breach so easy and takes so minimal air pressure to blow i couldn't keep my lips on the call they were blowing out so i i had to stop and i went there blue friday night and they blow two rounds on friday night i blew i, I didn't bro blow any practice stuff or anything in the bullpen just went out there and blew two rounds and then got called back to saturday night to the finals blew one round in there and i don't think if there had been a tiebreaker i could have kept my lips on the call for for one i was that far out of out of calling shape Whoa. for the count so yeah the first year i went i won and then i was like oh no now i gotta come back again because <laughs> you won right right so i came back again the next year and i finished fifth um and i made the final round finished fifth and then I officially retired after that. And then I came back and judged a couple of times. Hmm. So, so what was your contest call? Uh, it was a hybrid foils migrator call. Is I mean, interesting story that it was right about the time when short reads had been around. Most people were hunting with them, but flutes were still popular in contests. And I just started doing well with a flute and I traveled out to great Bend, Kansas for, a bunch of contests that Mike C was putting on um, who owned pattern master at the time and Mike C and Mike Niles and went out there and they had, I mean, all different kinds of contests, but they had two $1,000 open goose calling contests. And I went out there and I used a flute. I called in the first one and uh, Kelly powers won it. And I can't remember who got second and third, uh, but Kelly powers won it. But that first contest, I was the only flute caller to make it to the second round and i was like oh boy and i don't like losing i'm a very competitive person and and 
getting cut in the second round, I just, I mean, that's something I didn't happen to me very, very often. And so I was a little upset and mad and I went back to the room and, and sitting there thinking it over and they had like a show, like it was a, a weird, one of them hotels that have the, the pool and the lobby, everything is and the, all the rooms are around it. Well, in that lobby area, right in front of all our rooms was where they had call makers set up and whatnot. And, and, uh, I come out of my room getting ready to go over for that next contest. And I, I ran into Jeff Foyles, his boothers right there. And he says, what are you going to do today? And I said, well, he says, I said, I'm not sure. He says, you ain't gonna blow that flute, are you? And I said, well, thinking about blowing my super mag. And he's like, well, try this call. And I went, I, you know, I took it in the room and tried it and I came back out and I said, well, it's okay. I just, I can't get the sound I get on my super mag. And he's like, well, put, put your super mag guts in there and try it out. So I put them in there and I thought, oh, yeah, this is workable. And it was a modified, um, straight meat honker. It had, it was actually a snow goose insert, really super bored out. And, and I threw the guts in there and blew it a few times, liked it and walked and then walked over to the contest next door, blew in the contest and first, second, and third from the, the, first contest ended up getting second third and fourth and then i won that one hmm. so so from that point on i just made the switch to to a short read and and just kept going with it from there wow so, and I mean, long story short that's the that call there is the one i used to win the world that's okay. i mean you think about all the people that just spend their entire 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 summer practicing like crazy and practicing like crazy right before the contest and anybody that lost lost you at the world would be really going to be really depressed if they hear this well i mean you know i mean it's the, the same deal once you get that muscle memory and and everything you don't really forget it i mean it's like you carving a decoy you could probably not carve for six months and come back and jump right into it and be better than 99% of the people. Right. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I'd come back just, to it and I'd still struggle. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I'd still fumble. Yeah. So how, how about them wings on a Turkey decoys? Uh, that project is actually done. Awesome. Uh, there's awesome. a little caveat to that though. It's, it's a long story. We'll get into that. I don't know. What do you think, Brad? Should we be able to tell him? Oh, sure. Well, what we did, I don't even know what the caveat is. So well, this will be interesting. So, Sean, you know, you and I have been talking about that for a long time, and you send me texts in the middle of the night telling me to to include the wings on our strutter decoy. So I started that project, but while I was at it, I thought, man, this is going to be so much work. I think I'll, I think I'll like tear into it a little further, and like with every project, I have to take a a one week project and turn it into a four month project. And I Sounds thought, well, it'd be right. kind of yeah. cool to have a to have a whole new decoy out of it. So what I did was I made, I don't know if you're going to like this or not, but I made a Jake strutter. So it's a, it's, it's a little bit smaller strutter and I added wings to that. Oh, I already broke the news to him. I told Perfect. him at game yeah, fair and showed I, I him a picture, picture of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I like that. Well, <laughs> never mind. Option. Yep. More money for me to spend. Another option. Okay, good. Yes, no, all I, right. I like the idea because it's a smaller, a little bit smaller decoy and easier to carry around because most of the hunting I do, I've got to walk half to three quarters of a mile. So that's that's nice. Dave, did you know that Sean killed a bird with two-inch spurs this year? That was Michigan, right? Yeah, yeah. Two... But it took three shots. <laughs> and I shot the beard completely off it. Oh, yeah, well, my, it turns out that my scope on my crossbow had came loose 
and I, my first shot, I sawed the beard right off it. The second shot, I caught the edge of the blind and sent the arrow to parts unknown because it was fighting the decoy. It was fighting the jake decoy and jumping up and down instead of just relaxing and, you know, waiting for him to settle down. I shot at it and hit the corner of the blind. So then I reloaded my last arrow and I put it right on the spot and maybe just a hair further back and pulled the trigger and he jumped up in the air about 10 yards and flew about 40 and crumpled up. So, I mean, I'm mad and my buddy comes out to help me pick up and he's looking, I'm, I'm looking for arrows all over the field because my, my other buddy's <laughs> going to come spray the field. The, uh, the farmer, he's going to come spray the field. I'm looking for the arrows. So it doesn't puncture a tire. And he he's like, dude, you've got to see this. I went over there and I was like, Holy cow. I mean, two inches are big, man. I'll bet. I mean, I was kind of assuming that you knew it had two inch spurs and that's why you were missing it. No clue. I wow. just knew the. there was two birds come in and one of them, he come in and was fighting the decoy and I knew the other one was coming and I waited for the second, the dominant bird. And I mean, I knew they were both older birds. I didn't know, you know, they, these birds have been living like a half mile off the road. So you could, I mean, it was just hard to tell unless you went and hunted them. But yeah, so I come home and I shot the, I shot it at a target this bird was at 26 yards when i shot it and i shot the target at 20 yards i was like six inches five or six inches to the right and two or three inches low my scope had come loose and uh once i tightened it back up it was it was right back where it was but okay i no, thought you were, I I were going to say that your your practicing with your crossbow is pretty similar to your practicing right before the world goose calling contest. well <laughs> that's, that's pretty similar and that's that's the so you know people make oh you got a crossbow that's not real hunting well I bought a crossbow to go turkey hunting in Nebraska a few years ago for archery only season, knowing full well that if I bought a bow, I wasn't going to practice with it. So in, in order to be, you know, humane about things, the crossbow was the best route for me. You, I mean, once it's zeroed in, it's zeroed in and it doesn't, there's not much in technique or anything like that. It's just putting the crosshairs where it needs, you know, knowing the distance and putting the crosshairs where it needs to be. But yeah, that caught up with me. But yeah, it was a mounter for sure. It would have won the local uh, turkey uh, tournament and, and everything. If it just, I mean, if it had a nine and a half inch beard or better, it would have won. I mean, hands down. Wow. But I, I mean, I completely sawed the beard off. Like, not one strand oh, was geez. more than. Do you think it was more than, than nine long. and a half? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it was laying right there on the ground in about a, you know, about a two and a half, three foot circle right there by the decoy. And that, that's not yeah. a very big beard for an Eastern, is it? Nine and a half is pretty, pretty uh, mediocre. Or? You know, it depends. Uh, nine and a half to 10 is about average for a good Eastern around here. I consider um, nine and a half to 10 inches pretty average too. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they get bigger than that, but I, mean, uh, it, <laughs> I don't think you picked up yeah. on that one. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I got 10 for. <laughs> well, I'll have to see a picture of that. That sounds crazy. I mean, I've never, I've never seen two inch, two inch spurs in my life. Oh, that's crazy. That's the first time I have. And my kid, he shot a couple like uh, inch and five eighths, inch and three quarters. My kid had. He's the luckiest, luckiest unlucky turkey hunter there is. And he shot the two biggest birds I'd ever seen up until that two inch bird bird. Yeah, is and I, you know, I can put those spurs next to his, and it's just crazy the difference the the curvature of those spurs oh, yeah. is amazing they look like rainbows <laughs> i'm not kidding you literally 
you carried it out, you put the spurs on one side on either side of your hand and used it for a handle to carry it out. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah, one and a half. That's that's my best. I've seen a lot of turkeys die, and I don't think I've yeah. seen bigger than yeah. an inch and a half. No, it's in typically, and really, I it doesn't matter to me. I like seeing them coming in strutting and doing a deal. Um, it can be, and a lot of times that's the two year olds that do that. But um, and that's why I like hunting over turkey decoys because if I found that you get more of them older birds to come in and react um showing their dominance you can get them to come in whereas if you don't it's more the two-year-old show so tell us tell us about your career and how everything's going and what you're up to and everything with rntv going well getting ready to start filming here pretty soon here in about three weeks i'm getting ready to hit the road um just currently working for rich and tone i've been doing that for about 10 years now uh co-host the tv show along with john stevens and jim ronquist and then jim and i both uh produced the show um so i'm responsible for four to six of my shows and two to three of john's and then jim does his stuff uh also take care of the goose call line for them um and uh help, help run the pro staff for rich and tone and then i also do some stuff on the side like i designed the panel blind for tangle free so i'm responsible for some uh supplying them you know with some marketing material throughout the year video footage pictures and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and and correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like the last couple seasons you've been hunting almost exclusively out of those those panel panel blinds well you know times change and people change we get older the geese get smarter uh it used to be when ron latchaw first came out with the uh with the layout blinds uh i'm not what, what was the the first one actually the slider the slider yeah the slider yeah it, which was you know we had to take out small loans and mortgage our, our homes for uh but you know and then the then the eliminator and then the pro guide and you know you could throw those out in the middle of a field and barely camouflage them and birds would pile in um now they've gotten pretty well conditioned smart to those things sitting out in the field no matter how much you uh try to hide them and it's gotten easier i call goose hunting geese waterfowl in general it's an it's an evolution and a revolution not uh mm-hmm. it, revolution in the, in the sense that things revolve yep uh it's a revolving evolution where things that worked uh 20 30 years ago are now successful because they, these birds haven't seen it um and are not conditioned to it you know we can start using different silhouettes again uh black and whites are popular in certain parts of the country and hunting edges laying out in decoys uh, those sort of things are productive. You know, we can get birds to come to an edge where we can't get them to finish in the middle when we're hunting out of layout blinds, and it's nothing more frustrating. It's not it, it this this design of the blind and everything wasn't you know um, it was designed out of necessity to be able to hide and shoot birds first. You know, not to make money first. 
it was it was I wanted a better way to hide from these things to be able to be productive because it was just like pulling your hair out trying to hide from birds. Part of that went back to you know hiding putting decoys way far away was to get them down low so they didn't come in up over the top and see these six, seven, eight, however many guys you had these rectangles, you know, that that don't look natural, these squares, these edges that don't look natural and these shadows they were creating. So um, that that's where, you know, this edge thing kind of come from. And now the guys that we, we hunt with, they refuse to hunt out of layout blinds. Um, because it's so much more comfortable sitting on a, on a stool and standing up. And I like it from a communication standpoint, you know, you can look down the line and talk to everybody and they can see where you're looking when you're calling. Oh, that must be um, nice. As opposed to being in a layout blind when everybody's got to pop their heads out and all these pumpkins and you want to play whack-a-mole sometimes in a layout blind. Right. And somebody, somebody inevitably thinks that the shot was called and they come yeah. flying out. Yeah. Or just whatever. Yeah. It's just, you know, I'm not saying that hunting the edge is going to work for another 10 years, but it's working now. And that's, that's what we're going to stick with and do. Um, and I'm not getting rid of my layout blinds because someday they're going to be useful again. Do you, um, uh, let me ask, how far do you typically start your decoys when you're edge hunting? And does that depend somewhat on how thick the edge yeah. is, I guess? Yeah. It, it, uh, I'll keep them, you know, 10 yards from the edge, usually I'll start them 10 to 15 yards. And then I don't run, I'll run them out to about 40 yards out in front of us, but I may on the side, on the sides, I may run 60, 80 yards one way or the other with them mm-hmm. uh, or farther, you know, on a downwind side, it just depends if we're hunting lessers or honkers or anything like that. But I don't want to get them too far out in front of us. Um, I want to be able to pull them up into that 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 black spot a little bit closer because you know that's the other thing i grew up hunting public land and the public land we hunted it was basically a one mile by one mile square where the refuge was and you hunt all the way around the perimeter and basically you get a zone that's about 100 to 125 yards wide and then the next zone starts and the next zone after that so you may have one field uh that has like zone i'll just uh, zone five has zone 5A through J. So there's that many people spreads that are set up in that field. Um, and, and you're hunting out of standing corn, and it's a very similar style to how I'm hunting now, back today off the edges. So um, your shots, you're shooting at decoying birds, but your decoying birds aren't that 10, 15 yards off the boot bags like they were 10 years ago when, when layout blinds were so effective. They're 30 to 35 yards out in front of you. So you got to kind of choke, choke your gun, uh, appropriately, you know, before mm-hmm. I'd be shooting like a modified choke. Now I'm shooting like, uh, I mean, we, we all shoot at RNT. We shoot Rob Roberts chokes, but I'm shooting the T3, which is their tight, uh, their tight constriction. Um, and it just, it's just keeping, you know, your pattern at a, at a lethal, um, lethal size out to, you know, 40 yards or so. Gotcha. Yeah, that's very similar to how we hunt out here. I mean, we've been on yeah. edges for, oh gosh, I don't know. It seems like 20 years or, yeah, or more. Some of them feels like you're hunting. I mean, how do you hide in the middle of a wheat field? Oh, you, when, wheat field? you yeah. I mean, you can't physically, unless you're in a pit and, and even those don't hide well sometimes. Yeah, exactly. But we're still, 
Yeah, we're not as advanced as you guys, I guess. We're still still hunting out of layout blinds for the most part. And I don't know about that because most every decoy revolution I've ever seen has come out of the Pacific Northwest. I remember um, I hunted at Horicon Marsh for part of the uh, Waterfall USA's national convention. They had several of us come over there and guide. And I had a I had a guy, and I can't remember his name, but I have his picture somewhere. Um, but he was from the Pacific Northwest, and he sent me some photos of these guys hunting over Bigfoot decoys, but they were actually hand-painted and looked so realistic back in the – this was back in the, like, 98, 99, somewhere in there. And I, I just couldn't believe how realistic they look, and they came from there. And then, you know, you look at the the stuff that you've done – um and various other people that have been from out you know in your area uh most of the decoy you know the, i don't know what you want to call them but the the revolutionary type stuff the motion systems the realistic decoys and stuff all that stuff's come from you in particular um but your area in general Oh, it's just we're desperate. If we don't have the skills, we got to make it up some some other way. <laughs> well, that's what everybody. Yeah, that's what I tell people about calling. I learned. I mean, I learned to call because I wanted to, but because I wanted to get better. But partly because I can't shoot. <laughs> I got to be able. I got. I got to be able to call them close enough so I can shoot at them three times and then still reload and shoot one or two more times at them before they're out of range. But I mean, I think that's what drives us all to make better stuff and do better because we want we want to make for a better hunt. So we're always looking to improve on things. So, um, walk us through a show then as, as I'm, I'm interested as co-host and producer, you know, you don't, you don't hear of too many people who are both. So well, walk us through a typical shoot. Well, that's, I mean, in the waterfall industry, we're such a small industry and, and mar you know, the margins on things and whatnot, you got to kind of wear, multiple hats but you know typically like we'll roll in and we've got an agenda or an idea of what it is we're trying to uh show whether it's um you know a certain tactic a certain product certain people those kind of things so we kind of meet up or meet with the camera guys and kind of say okay this is a game plan for today we've got this new product this is what we're trying to highlight this is what we're trying to show how it's used and how it can benefit hunters. So you need to get this, this shot, this shot, this shot next way, you know? And so we kind of go over that, you know? And so when we roll into the field, they know what they're doing. They've got their jobs. So I kind of will manage, you know, the guy setting up the blinds, I'll take care of the, getting the decoy set up in roughly the way I want them. In the meantime, I'm getting camera guys directed where they need to be and pointing out various uh, shots that they need to need to try to get or should be getting and then i'll continue working on the decoys and then then i'll get actively into the hunt you know and part of the hunt um but at the whole time i'm still kind of watching from a producer standpoint of okay we were talking about this make sure you get this supporting shot or this supporting b-roll to cover you know what we're talking about um, so it's, it's kind of hard. Um, it's actually really hard to be in front of the camera and behind the camera at the same time and trying to do both jobs because sometimes, you know, you're, you're kind of caught in that being in front of the camera and having that look like you're in deep thought and pro, you know, and, and not real engaged in the camera because you're thinking about, okay, we need to be getting this, this, and that, 
kind of thing. So that, that sometimes is hard to separate, um, and being, you know, active in the hunt. So, I mean, it's, it, in, in a lot of ways, filming becomes a lot of work and it's a big drain. Um, it's a big, it takes a lot out of you actually, you know, I tell people if you're going to get a job in the industry and, and work in the hunting industry, what, what, you know, hunt deer, turkey, whatever, you better really, really, really love hunting because it's going to, uh, there's so much to it, more to it. Everybody thinks, oh, you just get to go hunting. Well, that's what you see, but not, you don't see the behind the scenes stuff of everything that goes into it. And it's a lot of work and a lot of pressure and it can take the fun out of hunting you know and you've got to be able to separate that stuff and you got to be able to come home and go buddy hunting and that's why i turkey hunt in the spring it's i mean i love to hunt i love the art of hunting i love the finesse part of it i like fooling the animal on on their level and i like sitting in the woods and listening you know being out there and listening to the woods wake up in the morning the same way i like to be waterfall hunting you know, and see the sunrise and, and hear the birds, you know, start coming. And I, I still get a rush out of it, but waterfall hunting has become such a job that I, I like to have, you, you got to have another hobby, you know, to, to do. And that's why I, I do the turkey hunting. Like I can turkey hunt for an hour before work every day, just walking out my front door if I want. Um, and just it kind of grounds you and gets you back to that, what you really like about being outside and hunting. Sure. Did you ever get the big game bug? Do you hunt whitetails? I do not. I started out hunting whitetails, being from Michigan. I mean, part of the Orange Army. And I mean, there at one point there was 450,000 water or uh, deer hunters in the state of Michigan, about the same in the state of Wisconsin. So, roughly Good between Lord. Wisconsin, roughly between Wisconsin and Michigan, we have roughly the same number of waterfowlers in the 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 united states so um i was part of that orange army and i something about deer hunting um i deer hunted but i while i was out deer hunting i would see that i would see geese flying over i'd hear ducks in the swamp and there was something about it just kind of drew me to you know to it and i shot a deer when i was 14 and we only needed one for the freezer and dad said you're we're done and i said well i'm still wanting to go hunting he said well uh the only thing open is ducks and i've got some uh old paper mache duck decoys in the rafters i'll get them down and you can you and the two dogs can go down to the pond i mean at 14 years old i mean this doesn't happen much anymore you know dad says there's there's a pond just down you know through the field and into the woods there about a half mile you can take you know these dozen decoys and these two dogs and you're going and go and that's what I did. And I went down there and I shot, uh, I had two teal come in and I ground swatted them, water swatted them. But, <laughs> but that was, that was my first, that was my first deal. And I don't, I never, I didn't really look back after that. I probably, I would go deer hunting as a social event after pretty much after that, you know, I go with my grandpa once or twice a year, uh, or, you know, at the duck club, they'd let us, that I guided at, they'd let us come out and deer hunt and we'd have a big party the night before, cook a prime rib and, and get up in the morning and go out for an hour and that'd be my deer season. But, um, I, I love to hunt. Um, I just never been bit by the big game buzz. I don't want to, I don't want to look into elk hunting too much because I, 
hear everybody say how much it's like turkey hunting. Uh, but, uh, oh, you and me um, both, but you know, I was telling, I was telling, uh, you guys out there in Minnesota went to that, uh, what's that, that full draw film festival. And I, I was sort of starting to get the itch to go, you know, elk hunting. I'd seen a little bit of the primo stuff on TV and whatnot. And, and I, I went and watched that full draw film festival and I seen the type of terrain in the Hills. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, no. no. Uh-uh. I'm not walking up and down all that stuff, dragging an 800 pound animal out. No, thanks. <laughs> Smart man. What about fishing? I used to fish a lot. I used to golf a lot. I used to play uh, on an adult hockey league. I used to do all that stuff until I started working in the industry. And it's, I mean, it's such a 365 day a year job for me now. I don't get a chance to do a lot of it anymore. And I, I bought a fishing license this year and I have not fished one time. My boat is sitting in the barn with piles of stuff on it once again this year. And I used to be an avid fisherman. I got my first boat when I was 12. My grandpa got me a, he bought me a 12 foot flat bottom with an old Johnson two and a half outboard motor. And we camp all summer long and I get up in the morning and eat breakfast and I wouldn't come back until I was hungry and I come back and eat and go back out. Hmm. Um, but I mean, I do love fishing. Don't get me wrong. I love to fish, but I just, I just not between work, uh, and traveling all the time and then family obligations when I'm home fishing just kind of has taken a back seat. but I do love to fish. And I mean, living here in Michigan, I mean, you could walleye fish, smallmouth fish, largemouth bass. There's pike, there's muskie. You can go out on the big lake, catch lake trout, coho, kings, I mean, we've got everything here within, I can catch every one of them species of fish within about a 15 mile radius of my house, but I just don't get a chance to go like I did when I was a kid. Yeah. So notwithstanding all these great opportunities to, to fish and, and, and deer hunt around you, um, you, you've kind of more or less given up on, on them, but you're still an avid bird hunter, primarily waterfowl and and turkeys. You have not lost that that fire that passion no, no, no i still like to do it and man i'd love to be able to go fishing but there's only so many hours in the day and you know i've got a son who's active in sports and and all the other you know school activity stuff and a, and a wife and it's just you got to try to balance priorities and it, at some point uh i'll be back fishing again but for now i got to do the other things that uh that are a little bit higher priority Sure. That makes sense. And then for the show for, for this season, do you have every trip planned out right now? Uh, no, no, typically I do. Um, but I don't right now <laughs> I've got one trip planned out and I kind of, what I want to do is um, when we get all the guys together, uh, we call ourselves the RNT RNT goose crew with a K, but, uh, we just like to kind of run around, um, we will hunt with outfitters, uh, but don't, I mean, that's not typically what we do. We like to kind of go to an area, um, meet up with some friends or buddies and do our own scouting, get permission, you know, all aspects of the hunt. Uh, you know, to me, the shooting the bird parts is the, the end result of all the hard work mm-hmm. you've done to get to that point. So I like, I like to be part of that effort. I don't like somebody 
you know, saying, okay, here's the action. Here's 5,000 birds. And right. Go in there and shoot them. You look like a superstar. And well, that's, I don't feel right. Gratified that, it doesn't it. feel rewarding, like does it? No, it's, it's not. I mean, it's fun to do, but it's just not overall rewarding. So I want to get the guys together and say, you know, uh, where do we want to go around the country that's different that, um, uh, we can go and experience a, a new, you know, learn some things from people, um, and, and see a different part of the country and still shoot birds. Cause you know, that's the other thing people, you know, and you, you hunt with people and they expect, you know, Oh, so, you know, Sean Stahl's coming here and he's going to hunt and you, you, we're going to shoot him up and blah, 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 you know, not necessarily. And, you know, there's like, you know, they always, okay, how do you want to set the decoys? Well, how have you been setting the decoys? What have the birds been doing for you? You know, I, I always defer to local wisdom. Um, they are the ones with their feet on the ground in that area. And I can go through the things that I've learned in my hunting career in life of what works if this isn't working, you know, if then, but if type stuff. So, um, you know, if we get into an area and, and, you know, we show up, I hunted, made a mistake one time, hunted Western Minnesota and I brought uh, layout blinds that were in KW1 camo, not knowing that every field in Western Minnesota is chisel plowed in black. I mean, we couldn't get a bird within a hundred yards from us in, that was, I learned my lesson there of, you know, I didn't ask enough questions before I went and listened to the people that hunt around there for us to be successful. So, um, so that's, you know, one of the things that I rely on when we do travel around and go to these new places and meet these new faces is that we listen to them and, and figure out what works because I'm not, I'm not an expert on everything and i don't claim to be i've just got knowledge of what works um if you know if if something doesn't work i got i got an idea of what will all right right on all right so i want to switch gears a little bit here and um rehash a discussion that we'd had at game fair sean about social media and its impact on the sport um want to hear your thoughts is it a good thing is it bad Maybe a little bit of both. I think there's good and bad. Um, good in the in the sense that you're able to teach people things on social media, um, how to use products, showing them new products, um, new techniques, new tactics, uh, those kind of things. The the downside I see with social media is, you know, like we talked before, it's kind of a measuring contest, popularity contest. Uh, who can get the most likes? um on a picture you know or whatever they're trying to do and it's it's fed into the the narcissist it's, it's creating a narcissistic hunting society um that's like driven and not based on um we lose a lot of you know it's gotten to the point where somebody with you know 30,000 50,000 whatever likes uh has more perceived value or clout than somebody with 30 years of experience uh in the outdoors what's that i said that's a great way to put it yeah whatever what's wrong with hunting because it's fun yeah and that's really what it should be about and i i get so frustrated we'll be on a hunt and i'll look down and this could be even in my group i look down and there's people taking all these photos and selfies and 
doing all this and holding it up and you know and we might shoot three birds and you look on social media and it's pumped up like you know oh there's here's my three you know you're seeing such a snapshot uh, of of something that happened and not the overall thing that happened it could have been an absolutely horrible hunt right but they're blowing it up like it's you know it was the greatest thing in the world and they're you know they're they're the world's number one hunter and this and that and you know you look down the line and, and all these people are taking pictures and they miss the nature they miss the birds flying by they miss reality that you know i, I think about my kid in, the, in his cell phone and you're driving down the road and all he's doing is looking down at his phone in the back seat he's missing the world go by you know and that's that's what society has become we're, we've we're looking at a at a at this little window of unreality that we want that that we're trying to build up to make us look better and not seeing the real world that's going on around us and you know and that's what we should be out there hunting for we we should be hunting not for likes but to enjoy an outdoor experience right and it it almost feels like there's more to it too um, in, in terms of the uh, negative consequences that it's having on on the sport, it, it feels like it's kind of accelerated the deterioration of the, um, how would I say this? Everybody wants to be sponsored these days. And it's like, it's more important that they get sponsored by a company than whether they actually like the products that that company makes. And I'll give and, you a perfect and they have virtually no loyalty. Oh, none whatsoever towards that, towards that product. I, when a bigger, better, you know, something a bigger, better deal, a BBD pops up on them, and they just jump ship and go on to the next one, and it, it, it ruins their credibility. And it, in in reality, I mean, you're if you're doing it for that reason, you're in the sport of hunting for all the wrong reasons. And I I still contend that if we took uh, if, if we eliminated social media and cell phones and spinning wing decoys out of a blind, we'd probably lose half our hunters, which <laughs> conservatively, is conservatively. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, so many people just pay attention and, you know, and people that are listening, pay attention on your next hunt and just see how many people have their phones out and, and taking pictures and trying to self promote themselves and not be part of the group. I mean, Know, it's, it's almost amazing. like you got six guys and two of them are texting each other back and forth in the blind when all you had to do was talk. We're not talking. <laughs> we're not, we're not paying, you know, paying attention to what's going on. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it, I see it all the time now. Yeah. You know, I go over to my buddy's house and he's got kids in high school and they're literally sitting in the living room four or five of them, every single one of them engaged in their little machine, you know, and having conversations with each other. And I don't want this to sound phones. like old guys talking about kids. It's it's a real issue. It's a real problem. Didn't you have some experience, Brad, recently with somebody? Oh, right. Kinda... Yeah, Scott and I were at Game Fair. And uh, Scott will have to correct me on this one if I get any of it wrong because I actually wasn't in the booth to hear it. But, I mean, it's, you know, one of many examples um, similar instances we've experienced over the years with a guy came into the booth I said, wow, these decoys look great, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and, uh, how much are they? And, you know, Scott tells him and he goes, that is way too much to charge for goose decoys. I would never use these decoys, you know, unless you sponsor me. And, and, and he's got a thousand dollar cell phone. Right. 
yeah. then he goes and then he goes storming out of the booth and you know drops a you know f that it's like it, it and it's funny to me it, and this it seems to really stir some emotions in people when you know you're selling a premium product and it's always uh it, it's kind of fascinated me how some people actually seem to get really like visually when they get pissed off you know mm-hmm. that you're um offering a product right that you're offering a product it's like buddy you know if you if you don't want to spend that much on decoys i got great news for you number one it's a free country you, you don't you don't have to buy decoys at all and you have about you know a million options for cheaper decoys because every decoy that's made is cheaper than ours and you know how many brands are out there these days so um you know that's kind of kind of amusing anyways yeah no that's it uh i i'm forced I mean, just because of the position I'm in and the job I do to have to market and do things and use social media as that tool, but that's for my job. And like my kid, you know, my kid said about, you know, getting Facebook, he's like, his mom or my wife, his mom asked him if he's going to get Facebook. He's like, no. She's like, why? He said, why would I want everybody knowing my business all the time? Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's bizarre. It's, and when it comes to like, yeah, I see a lot of things like couples that, I know there's, I know their situation. And if you were to only know them through their Facebook posts, you would think that their life is magical. And that like, (laughs) you know, they just make it look like every single meal is just a gourmet meal. And every day. That's exactly the point I was making earlier about, you know, holding up a picture of a couple of birds and, you know, making it seem like this was a magical hunt one. It was fun. We had it. It was a great hunt success by a lot of measures, but you're blowing it way out of proportion. Your, your eight guys killed two limits of ducks and, and self promoter goes and grabs the seven green heads out of the pile and takes a selfie. Like he just shot a limit of all green. Most posts on social media are so far from reality. It's not even close. And that's let's, this isn't even talking about some of the other people that are entering into our waterfall industry that are of a um that basically uh want to become models in the waterfall industry um and gain support and sponsors and they have very little to no waterfall background well you follow follow what i'm going with that uh uh-huh yeah and you know the way i look at it sean is I think of those two endeavors as two completely separate endeavors. One of them is hunting and the other one is like whatever it is, self-promoting. And they're, they're completely separate. Like there, there are people that just absolutely love hunting and they're going to go and they're going to go by themselves. They don't care whether they take a picture. If they do take a picture, they don't care whether they share it or not because they've, they already had the awesome hunt and that's all that matters. That, then, you know, and I, I get stuck in that because I don't like, I don't like taking pictures. I don't like, you know, I like to take it all in because if, if I find myself, you know, it's like I get caught, like I've got, I'm like the family photographer, you know, and I'm just using it as this as an example. I go to these events and they're, you know, life moments, but I'm standing behind a camera capturing it. I'm not in it. I'm not living it. And that's what I find when I'm hunting is that if you're always taking photos and doing this and that, 
you're not living in the moment. You're living in a per, your perception of what you want people to think is reality. Yeah, absolutely. And you can just you can find that out by watch videos of people at like a, a lifetime event. Like it could be some aliens coming from outer space um, to Earth for the first time. And here's your chance to to actually experience it. And what's everybody doing? They're they're watching it. They're they're videoing it on their. Yeah, I guess my message is to people is put your damn phones down when you're hunting and enjoy the hunt for what it is. Yeah, and just... talk to the person. Talk to the person next to you. Don't text them. Right. I think that's a pretty good spot for us to wrap up there, Sean. Thanks so much for your time and and for sharing part of your day with us. And um, good luck with the show and 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 all your hunts this coming fall and winter. And uh, keep in touch. Okay, man. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and it's uh, always good to sit down and talk to you guys. I know you enjoy, I know you enjoy the sport as much as I do. Definitely. Right on. All right, brother. Good talking to you. Take care. All See right. you, Sean. Bye.